What if you could simply trust all information on the internet? My name is Sebastian and I'm on the mission to build a trusted web for all of us on planet Earth. An internet where my parents, possibly my future kids and my own generation can find truth and feel safe. Because to save the world, we need to fix the internet. And in the Trusted Web podcast, I embark on a journey with you, my listener and thought leaders, to explore what needs to get done. In this episode, I'm joined by a very, very special guest, and it's Scott Sternetta. Scott is a grandfather, a teacher, an investor, and scientific researcher, and the inventor, or an invention he did 30 years back, totally revolutionizes the world of tech today. In 1991, over three decades back, he and Stuart Haber published a white paper, how, and I have it here, how to timestamp a digital document. And in this paper, in fact, could be described as the invention of blockchain. In 1992, this paper won the Discover Award for computer software, and it's considered to be one of the most important papers in the development of cryptocurrencies and blockchain as we know it today. And just like you and me, he is trying to make the world a bit better, one day at a time. Scott, thank you so much for joining the Trusted Web podcast. Uh, It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of what it is that you're doing, and I'm trying to find a way to to add some value. Yeah, I'm really, I look forward to this conversation for uh, days. I didn't sleep last night, so it's wonderful to have you here. Um, You did a lot of work after the publication of the white paper as well. Would you mind doing a short one or two minute introduction of yourself? I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, but can I be a stickler on one point? And that is, you know, we're so familiar today with the concept of white papers, which is obviously what the Bitcoin white paper was. He, the author wrote something, posted it on the web. <clears throat> and similarly, when other cryptocurrencies are created, they post a white paper on the red. In an earlier day and age, um, there was the concept of a, refereed paper. And so while um, uh, many papers are just posted on the web, ours had to go through an editorial process reviewed by our peers. And so we actually think of that paper as a, as a journal paper rather than a white paper. But I know I'm just being persnickety. I think the first thing I would point out is that after publishing that first paper, what many don't realize is that there were two subsequent papers uh, over the course of um, several years that further elaborated and enumerated um, ways to improve on the proto blockchain. And while it's very flattering to have people, um, you know, reference that original paper, um, it's often the case that. Um, no one's really read the second or third papers. And one of the things that I think is uh, interesting is that the third paper really sort of prefigures both the concept of um, IPFS as well as um, the concept of NFTs. And that's kind of a little recognized nugget about something that's uh, embedded in the third paper and is 
available as a reward only to those people that actually read the papers. Um, so, I, you know, we spent several years right after that paper um, thinking about further elaborations and protections and security concerns, as well as uh, establishing a fledgling company to try to implement the ideas of what we now call blockchain. Certainly don't want to complain, certainly don't want to um, represent that it was a smashing success, maybe a little bit too early for its time. But it's something that continues to operate at a basic level even, even today. Beyond that, um, <clears throat> I really uh, sort of got the bug about working with startups when we first um, set up this uh, less than fully successful startup uh, built around the proto-blockchain. And so I've really spent um, a career uh, mentoring startup companies and assessing um, what technologies can be the basis for future uh, big companies. Work. I've enjoyed working a lot with academics, researchers, and uh, that want to consider being an entrepreneur and trying to sort of coach them through that transition. And um, I currently work in that role in the sense that I'm a partner at a VC firm that focuses on blockchain and AI. Uh, and uh, I very much relish that role. Um, the investing part... Um, you know, is is nice, but it's really the mentoring that keeps me uh, motivated and excited about uh, the opportunities. Um, and then in all of that, I still have, I spent some time sort of semi-retired teaching uh, high school. And because I was only drawn back into the whole blockchain vortex four or five years ago, Wow. Um, and now I still teach uh, just a couple of classes part time at a local private school, um, which, again, I feel is very similar to the mentoring uh, work uh, that I enjoy with the startups. I, I guess the last thing I would say by way of what I've done since is I continue to think about ideas and it's the ideas that really matter to me. And um you know, I'm continuing to work on the side on on some society improving ideas that uh, that I think are possible. I, I think, um, and I apologize if I'm going on a little bit too long, but no worries. Um, software really isn't about software. It's about or the kind of software that I'm interested in. It's about restructuring the. Um, relationship among people and entities uh, and hopefully creating a, a better society, you know, one, one link at a time. That's so really, it's sorry. really that sort of social engineering and economic engineering implemented in software or realized through software that continues to fascinate me and where I'm trying to um, make, continue to make contributions. Wonderful. Thanks for that introduction. And that's really where I want to take this conversation today, really the societal impact thing as well. Um, 
as you know, in 2020, but also for the listener, we won a prize from the European Commission. It was the Blockchains for Social Good competition. And that's, I was so proud on Europe in that case for recognizing it not as a speculation technology, <laughs> but really as a societal impact technology. And that leads me to the first question. What was three and a bit decades back, what was the really the vision when uh, the two of you wrote that white paper? Right, that journal paper. Sorry, the journal yeah. paper, once okay. again. <laughs> it's okay. Um, well, again, it was a great combination because I was very uh, excited about a social concern, but had no real expertise whatsoever in the cryptographic space. I had done my PhD in physics and even there, it was uh, more in the uh, neural networks side of uh, neural networks. In the early days, a lot of the work was done by physicists. And so I, I had no uh, cryptography background, but I had this sort of burning issue that was bothering me, which was I recognized that as all the world's data moved into digital form, and was continuously transmitted and stored on different media than where it was originated, that it brought up the question of, can we trust any of the world's records? And I meant that not just in a day-to-day -day sense, but in a broad historical sense. Um, how will we convince the next generation or generations a hundred years from now that the records that they're looking at are an accurate reflection of the society of that many years ago. And it, to me, it was a very um, dystopian future that I imagined if we didn't have a way to, uh, in a universal sort of way, guarantee the integrity of the digital record. And so, um, and uh, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but for me, I have this fundamental conviction that the world can be a very good place. And so I felt like, well, then something needs to be invented to solve this problem or the world will stop being a very good place. And so on, it was on the strength of that that I felt like there must be some solution because if there weren't, then... It wouldn't be a good world. And so there's got to be a solution. So I hope it's, um, I, to me, this is an important point. Namely, the, the idea that there must be a solution wasn't based on anything about math or cryptography or physics. It was just based on the sense that this is a good world or it can be a good world. And so there must exist some solution to allow the world to be a good world. And so it was really on the strength of that, sort of the faith in that concept that I pursued this topic. Um, and so uh, just to add a little bit more about that, that's when I first uh, joined um, Bell Communications Research, Stuart was already an established cryptographer. And so I was sort of the new kid on the block. Um, but Bellcore, uh, which was its abbreviated name, encouraged people to talk to other researchers, even out of, you know, your particular discipline. And so I, um, 
I made a beeline for Stuart's office because he was part of the cryptography group. As soon as I, I got there and I said, you know, I don't know much about crypto, but there is a, a problem that someday is going to be a huge problem. And we should try to get a jump on solving it um, now, even if it's a little ahead of time. You know, I had a, um, I had a, uh, a dissertation advisor when I was in graduate school. I had a couple of them, but one of them uh, told me an interesting analogy. He talked about how he was a theorist, but he liked to stay really close to the experimentalists. So when they got some new strange result, he wanted to be one of the first to hear about it. And his, his rationale was, that way I could work on the problem before all the smart people got there. And that was my feeling with Stuart. I said, let's, you know, someday everyone's going to recognize that this is an important problem. But then all the people smarter than us are going to, you know, be able to solve it. But if we get a jump on this, we can get in before the smart people have a chance. Which you did. <laughs> so we spent, um, you know, so Stuart was very gracious and, um, you know, he had other projects going, but he was happy to spend time just kind of brainstorming with me. And we made some real progress. Um, but we finally got to a point where um, even though we had a kind of working solution to the problem, it still had this unavoidable piece that you had to actually trust some party in the system absolutely you had to rely on them we could make the system more efficient we, we could make it more practical but it still had this fundamental limitation that you had to trust absolutely in one entity and so you know i went to Stuart and said um <clears throat> it would be really great if we could eliminate the need to trust some person or some entity, um, because then it would be a real solution, not just kind of a, I don't know um, what to call it, just sort of a best mental stuff. Yeah. Best effort uh, kind of thing. And so he agreed. And so we started off in that direction to uh, improve upon the base foundation. And after several weeks, Stuart sort of pulls me aside and says, you know, <clears throat> I don't think we're going to solve this problem, but um, I'd still like to get a publication out of this. So why don't we write a proof that you can't solve this problem? That's very common in uh, cryptographic and more broadly mathematical work, um, proving that something uh, is logically irreconcilable. Yeah. And so I said, okay, you know, if you don't think we're going to get there, let's at least try to prove why no one can get there. And it was really in the, in the process of refining the logical argument for why you had to trust someone ultimately that we hit upon the solution. And we realized that the proof that we were trying to make for why it couldn't be done was in fact the setup for how to actually do it. Um, pushing the proof that it couldn't be done revealed the solution of, of how to do it. So that was a magical moment for me uh, when that happened. Um, but to come all the way back to uh, where you uh, started. So for me, it was, it very much began and ended with a social setting. 
a social re-engineering problem, if you will. Um, how do we create a world where we can trust all of the records that we jointly share? So, Wow. And was it at uh, that company that you launched that first blockchain? And can you tell a bit about the first blockchain? Because there's a funny story with uh, a newspaper. Oh, yeah. Um, so again, um, as I said, Belcor, the, the research lab was a very, um, just a marvelous place to do research. They're very encouraging. A lot of freedom was uh, granted and, and they felt that what we had done was significant. And so we um, had additional resources to try to begin operating a system that in the words of that original paper could timestamp records, uh, prove that they, um, you know, had been created when claimed and that had not been altered afterwards, that they were reliable. And uh, again, I can't even begin to describe to you how naive we were about how one sp spins off a company and tries to make it, it real. Um, and that's surely partly the explanation for why it didn't uh, take off when we started it. Although I do think something is to be said about waiting for the right time and being a little ahead of the market. But at any rate, I'll, I'll uh, venture over to the New York Times that you referenced. So at the time, <clears throat> you have to picture, this was not a widely connected internet world. There was no World Wide Web. Um, there was an internet, of course, but it was very fledgling, you know, still just growing out of its DARPA days, where it was really just a way of linking key research universities and key government laboratories. It was much closer, as far as the general public was concerned, to a kind of dial-up to America Online, AOL, uh, Walled Garden, CompuServe, uh, you know, forum discussion place. And so we had to still come up with a mechanism that would make our efforts widely witnessed and unimpeachable. And so we hit upon, with the help of some other people, the notion of basically creating a genesis block <clears throat> and taking the hash of that and placing it as an ad in a very widely distributed newspaper. And for us, the choice was the um, so-called national edition of the New York Times. And the, the great benefit of that, if you think about it from a sort of um, adversarial point of view, was that by placing a regular um snapshot of the what we'd now call the blockchain in a regular weekly ad in this uh, paper something like half a million people got this paper and in particular essentially every major um academic and um um uh, large stature library would be getting a copy of it and archiving it. They became a note in the network. Right. They were functioning as a kind of super node in the sense that anyone that held 
a copy of it became a node. And so the difficulty of someone trying to subvert the system effectively meant they had to go into all the libraries in the world and, and fake a copy of, of something, which was an enormously uh, difficult task. And it was, for us, the whole point was it was an asymmetric war where we were on the winning side. We talk often about asymmetric warfare in a military sense, where the idea, of course, is that you're winning an asymmetric war if the just gonna if the cost to you of defending the situation is very cheap relative to the cost of an adversary trying to overcome the situation. And so for, I don't know, um, uh, we could look up the bills, but for something around $100 a week, we were able to create an almost impossible situation for an adversary who wanted to subvert the system. Um, It's not that we didn't think about a more modern style blockchain where, as you say, uh, a number of um, compute servers could could function as nodes, but it was just philosophically, so, it's the best that, that future world. It would be sort of like, and I've I've stolen this analogy from um, uh, a researcher at Stanford University in AI named Terry Winograd, but it would have sort of been like um, you're walking through a forest and you see someone up in a tree. And you say, what are you doing there? And he says, I'm going to the moon. And you say, well, there's no possible way you could get to the moon. And he goes, what do you mean? I'm I'm uh, ahead of you and I'm certainly making progress. And in that sense, the world of the 1990s felt so limited compared to what's capable in the in the 2020s. You know, to to go to our managers and say, we've got this great idea, but it will require... Um, you know, very high speed bandwidth amongst hundreds of millions of people and um, hundreds of gigabytes, if not terabytes of data storage for each of those individuals, they would have sort of responded the way I posed the question about the person trying to get to the moon by climbing a tree. It's a nice idea in theory, but it's just not uh, practical. And so for us, the New York Times was was a way to kind of... um, uh, deal with the limitations of the current technology. Yeah, wonderful. It's it's so smart. Um, from or a quick question in between. The what, what? How how easy or hard was it to sell a timestamp? It was very hard. Why? And again, it goes back to our inexperience. You know, one of the things I preach about regularly to early stage companies is that writing the code is not the same thing as having a product. Um, it's, It's so important that you tailor the potential of the technology to solve a very specific problem. And Um, that was hard for us to grasp. We just assumed that everyone would be enthusiastic about the idea and just wouldn't, couldn't wait to get there. And in fact, we met with all sorts of interference. In fact, one of the, um, 
one of the uh, things that was most disturbing was some people would react and say, well, this is a great idea, but what if I do want to tamper with the record? Or, um, you know, variations of that. And so clearly we were not selling a product that matched with what the customer actually wanted. Um, so it was, it was very tough sledding. Um, now, could a more experienced team uh, have pulled it off? I often think about that. I often sort of project myself of today back to the myself of those many years ago. I'm absolutely convinced that uh, even in its primitive state, we could have done a far better job of making it viable. But, um, you know, you don't get to replay life. No. So you think Wait. about tomorrow. Not With yes. all the knowledge of today, how would you sell a timestamp by then? How would you call it? How would you sell it? Well, uh, I think what you're doing with WordProof is not a bad uh, example of uh, of how to sell it because you're create you're explaining you're explaining that it's not really about the time or the timestamp itself. It's it's what it accomplishes and how it creates a, a world of trust and integrity. So um, I uh, I defer to you for I think you're figuring out just just quite well how to how to sell it, and it's still hard because we run into the same problem you're saying is a lot of people don't want the radical transparency that this open source technology can bring. And for example, I talk to the editors of many large newspapers, and they say, "Hey, trust." is a problem on the internet, but not on our platform. <laughs> so there's there's so many ideas around trust and assumptions about you being right and the others being wrong. It's, you, yeah, you can tie all those things back to Buddhism and uh, what is I and what is truth and what's realness. And uh, right. Well, we have a tendency to react in a more instinctive way when we feel like any of our own core um assumptions are not correct. Um, but it also points up um, what to me is another kind of lifelong lesson. And, and that is, there is this parable that is told about old wine and old wineskins and new wine and new wineskins. I don't know if it's something that you're familiar with, but to elaborate, I guess it turns out that if you um, if you have fresh wine, okay, and you want to store it, and wine skins are obviously how people store things. If you put it in an old wine skin, then because of uh, the way that the wine skin has already started to become somewhat rigid and you know is not as flexible as it used to be, and the new wine still hasn't even undergone the um, fermenting uh, the full fermenting process it will break the wineskin and so you have to put new wine into brand new wineskins and to draw the analogy when you have an idea that's as radical as this going to existing players that are entrenched in a particular way of doing business it's not going to end up helping them so much as completely new institutions that um, 
are willing to grow and adapt along the dimensions of the strength of the new technology, rather than try to constrain it to sort of fit a square peg into a round hole in their existing business infrastructure. And so, for example, you talk about the newspapers and the fact that they say, well, yes, it's a problem, but we're trustworthy, meaning we've put a lot of time and resources into making what we do uh, trustworthy. <clears throat> and, and so what we're saying with blockchain, for example, and it's not my intention to to uh, grab um, what um, WordProof is doing, but you're saying there's a new model that um, ensures the integrity of the individual records. They don't have to be associated with a particular institutional player, but it can move across institutions. Well, that's the advantage of the blockchain cutting against the existing players competitive advantage yeah and so it's not surprising that it's a hard um it's a hard sell it what it suggests is that it will it will fully flourish when new entities are formed that are relying on the blockchain to do what it does so well and then those entities try to focus on some other issues uh that are not aligned with the the blockchain so at its core, uh, you answered a bit of it already, but philosophically, what is blockchain about for you? Um, it's about a couple of things. One, it is about having the integrity of the record established and that it can move from one medium or one participant to another without any need to question its authenticity. But it's also about the way that the problem is solved. And that is by distributing the weight of the problem across the entirety of the society. And it naturally creates a mindset where we work in a peer-to-peer -peer way to provide a solution that none of us individually could, that can only exist in a in a in a shared ecosystem, not unlike uh, what happens with open software where everyone is able to contribute and then create a, a common good that we can all then draw on that is greater than the sum of its parts and that we can advance our own personal activities, but also by resharing back can um, make for a bigger pie for everyone. And so to me, it's really that, but instead of work it working just for software, now it can work for all data and all records. Yeah. And on top of data and records come all sorts of additional things. And so it's really creating a more peer-to-peer -peer world, or at least it has the potential to do that. And the world, it's 2022. What is the state of trust in the world today? Well, again, there's quite a bit of, unfortunately, excessive divisiveness and contention, at least in the part of the world where I live. Um, and uh, 
such that we would, I don't think people would have imagined uh, 10 or 20 years ago uh, to be possible. And so um, as, as that sort of unravels, uh, it's nice to know that there can be a force that can uh, provide an opposite pull and try to better unite people and give them a shared common collective purpose. And how, how can we make, um, how can, uh, how is the route? Can, firstly, can blockchain play a role in that? And two, how? Well, I think it certainly can play a role. Okay. But we also see blockchain um, being associated with many other things, um, including things that seem almost the opposite of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, collective um, uh, benefit. So, for example, um, with many cryptocurrencies, particularly in these early days, you see lots of speculation that at its heart is not about creating value, but it is about having something at the expense of others not having that that same thing. And that obviously is a very unstable situation. Um, you know, it's sort of like um, a winner-take-all uh, kind of situation where whether Bitcoin will go up or down is um, at least one strong component of it is, is uh, simply betting on which way other people are thinking it will go. And someone is certainly going to have windfalls as a result of that strategy, but it's only by grabbing more of the pie rather than making the pie bigger. Now, I don't want to imply that's the case for everything about Bitcoin or everything about other cryptocurrencies. Obviously, there is an ability to create value by making transactions more frictionless um, but that's all about taking that role of, of a traditional currency where, um, you know, it's not about, um, a, a conventional consumer doesn't think about, uh, well, the reason that I'm gathering up euros or gathering up us dollars is because I think their relative value is going to go up tenfold or a hundredfold. No. no, it's about being able to transact and have commerce and, and interaction with others. It, it's the medium, not the payload, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so there are components of that to many cryptocurrencies today. And I think over time, they will prove their worth. But it unfortunately attaches a lot of the moniker of being a speculative or a shady kind of practice, as opposed to something that inherently can benefit the entire group by how we support each other. That's, that's exactly the reason why we didn't do a token with WordProof to totally stay out of that realm. I think there are good use cases for tokens as well, but it really uh, distracts from the, from the, the essence, the integrity by design thing. Um, for 
blockchain to get adopted or for timestamps as a layer of, we always say a layer of trust under every information. And then the identity part, making sure that the communication is about person to person instead of computer to computer. For timestamps or trust to be adopted, what is what stakeholders should be involved because the publisher, maybe they don't want to be as transparent on revisions. Uh, a web shop can be the same thing with the terms of conditions or with the orders. What stakeholders should be involved in the adoption of this technology for trust? Well, I think there's a kind of ideal case and then there's a more realistic case. And the reason I talk about the two is in part to the fact that my own background is unavoidably linked to the way physicists think about uh, problems. You know, um, you know, there's a there's an old joke about um, how physicists are always trying to oversimplify the situation just so they can get a a grasp or a handle on a difficult problem. And um, if you'll let me, I'm just going to tell that story real quick. So um, there's a there's a dairy farmer and he wants to increase the output of his cow's milk production. And so he uh, he decides to hire as specialists, um, an engineer, a physicist and a psychiatrist. And so uh, first he brings in the um, engineer and the engineer does a study and says, okay, the, the way to increase the volume of milk that's produced is we just need larger size pipe to increase the flow rate. And then he brings in the psychiatrist and uh, that person says, no, 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 the, it, this is, that's totally the wrong direction. What really needs to be done is the cows need to feel better about themselves. And so we need to paint the inside of barns with very, pleasing scenes and in pastels and, and whatnot. And the, they bring in the physicist and the physicist says, well, I've got a perfect solution, but we're going to have to assume a spherical cow. And so um, back to your point, you know, what stakeholders should be involved in the spherical cow version of things? What we need is a very large sort of middle class of players that are both consumers and producers of information and simply want to have peer-to-peer -peer exchanges of that. And for them, that trustworthy framework that's built on the entire society is, is just ideal. Um, the reality, of course, is that for reasons not just of greed, but also of efficiency, we inevitably end up... Um, creating new concentrations of, of power, sort of super nodes. And we've certainly seen that kind of concentration occur in uh, the Bitcoin space with the sort of super miners that are, you know, build these huge aggregate networks that control a, a substantial part of the, what in Bitcoin's case is the mining, the proof of work that, keeps the trustworthiness of the system going. Uh, and so there's always going to be a tension like that. But I think a kind of intermediate view of it, and again, I'm, I, I have a real penchant for using analogies, 
um, but is to offer um, a, uh, a view of it in terms of, uh, I'm going to choose a different area, Airbnb. Um, you know, I had an interesting experience with Airbnb where we used it the first couple of times and it was great. Okay. And what we loved was the fact that we could go and read, you know, reviews of what the rest of the community thought about a particular property, but before we, um, you know, made a reservation. And that again is very egalitarian in the way that the community itself makes judgment on the suitability of, of properties. And presumably the community is uh, diverse enough that it, it's very hard to scam the situation. Yeah. So we got to, let's say the third time we wanted to use Airbnb and we found a nice place based on reviews and we put in our reservation and went on with our, our day. And about an hour later, we get an email back and it says, we've been rejected as someone that can stay at this place. Well, why had we been rejected? Well, we'd looked at their reputation to see whether we wanted to go for that place or not. Well, they had looked at our reputation. And since we'd only stayed twice, they said, you don't have a long enough reputation for us to trust you to come into our property. And that was the point where I realized that um, it really is a two-way street. Yeah. So many of the issues that we talk about um, about problems on the internet are in scenarios where <clears throat> you have some enormous company like a Google or a Facebook or, or uh, you know, anyone that has an asymmetric position with respect to us. Okay. They gather our data, but we don't have a kind of reciprocal way to gather theirs. Okay. Yeah. And so that's what leads to us um, in Tim Cook's words, becoming the product, you know, we, it means we get more spam, more email that we don't want more ads that we're not interested into and so, so forth. And, so people's natural response is what I need is more privacy. Okay. And I understand that response and it's, it's, it's certainly a, a justified one. But if you think about the Airbnb analogy, okay. It's not that what the person needs is more privacy. It's that they need more symmetry because if you try to go on to Airbnb and make use of the service and you insist on absolute privacy for yourself, no one will rent you a, a yeah. place. Okay. And so peer to peer will be killed. Yeah. And so I'm I'm just really trying to get out the idea that um <clears throat> we need to find ways to, to balance out the the producer and the consumer so that they're on a more even footing. And what that means is we all have to become producers to a certain extent. Okay. Otherwise you get this runaway asymmetry that leads to the concentration of all uh, the capital and the information in a very small number of companies. So I guess what I'm suggesting is a sort of power consumer is what's needed to be as the stakeholders, someone that is both a consumer, but a producer as well. 
and to find ways to get more into that state of things. Uh, that's what's needed. And does that may need to, is that through education? Is that through, how, how can we make the 5 billion and later, hopefully, hopefully 7 or 8 billion internet users, how can we make them producers? Well, obviously, uh, education is part of it. But um, <clears throat> since, uh, you know, there's a saying, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, my sense is that software engineering can help to uh, accelerate that. The right kind of incentive system that encourages people to both be consumers of what's available, but also be, in a more modest way, producers as well, I think, uh, can engender that kind of society. Um, in the conversations, I know you do things with Europe. I know you wrote on the uh, CBDC uh, thing for Europe as well, something published in 2021. Is there a role for policymakers? Because in Europe, we are responsible for GDPR. You, are you familiar with GDPR? Yes. GDPR, the execution was terrible. I always apologize on behalf of Europe for how GDPR was executed, but the intention was wonderful. They said the internet was love to jungle. We need to give our citizens better rights over their data uh, and we call that GDPR. So it was it was made mandatory to respect data in a yeah in a better way because consumers weren't able to do that themselves. Is there a logical is there a role for policymakers in demanding technology for trust, open source technology for trust for information that matters? I think there certainly is a role for policymakers. I mean, I'm, <clears throat> I'm, uh, I certainly have a reputation that I'm not trying to deny for being libertarian in my uh, political bent. But libertarian is different than anarchist. And um, to me, there's a terrific role for government and therefore for policymakers, so long as it is very well informed and as as lightly as light a touch as possible it shouldn't be about policymakers trying to control a situation so much as to nudge a situation into the right direction so i i very much think there's a, a role for that um obviously the uh, difficulty lies in in the details of that But I always, when I speak with um, government representatives, I make it clear that I think there's a strong partnering role for them to play. But I just want to emphasize how they really need to be well-informed about the potential uh, positive effects of this new technology. And, and then the need to have some protections in place to make sure it doesn't go out of hand in one direction or another, but to do it in such a way that encourages the flourishing of new ideas and new innovation and new value creation, as opposed to trying to police it so that it all fits within the same traditional box, uh, that ends up having a tendency to simply protect the existing established players rather than allowing the new technology to really flourish.
What did you learn from the conversation with policymakers or governments regarding this topic? Well, I think the good news is the vast majority of these people, and I mean this very sincerely, really do want to do good. You know, they they are like you and I trying to help make the world a better place. Um, part of the challenge is often the tools at their disposal that they are most readily interested in reaching for are controlling tools rather than supporting and nudging tools. But I think um, the caricature of policymakers as being all about control and, um, you know, simply um, making sure that whatever they do um, backs their constituency so that they get reelected or, you know, that they stay on the job. Um, that's an overly cynical view of, of people. Well, uh, most people really do want to be helpful, Yeah, uh, but they just uh, need a lot more information, a lot more education um, about how to craft that helpfulness. And is there a role for, uh, big tech and the algorithms, for example, one of the things we're thinking of and discussing with search engines, for example, is if you choose to be radically transparent or accountable, we can talk identity after this, um, you should rank higher in algorithms. And if you want to stay anonymous or not transparent, that's okay. There's still freedom of speech, but not necessarily automatically freedom of reach. Um Again, I think that's a great idea. I mean, there's so many di different directions that we could go with what you just said that could be useful, but I really like the one that you just raised, namely freedom of speech versus freedom of reach. Okay. What you have with um, much of today's environment is that um, if you're audacious enough and say something controversial enough, suddenly somehow that increases your reach, okay? That's a poor incentive system. And this leads to the whole idea of, well, these people that write these articles, they're just looking for clicks kind of thing. But I believe that the technology can be structured each way so that the, the people that are getting the biggest voice are the ones that are um, esteemed as by the individual peer as contributing the most value to the perspective. And there, I think WordProof, for example, has a role to play. Uh, we want to create a system that lets the best thinking get the largest reach. Um, whereas today you can simply basically barge in on a conversation and get eyeballs by saying something controversial. That's a poor incentive system. Yeah. And do the people who contribute or have the potential to contribute the most, do they want to be transparent and accountable? Is 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 there is there are there things you can say about that? Well, again, that's a new wineskin, old wineskin problem. Exactly. Um it it requires people, and again, I draw an analogy with the open source movement. At first, when open source appeared, it was, okay, how, how can traditional companies ever have sustainable models now if everyone can steal the 
the software. Um, and so it takes new business models and new thinking uh, and a little bit of faith in our fellow man to create working models of open source software. But, you know, we have companies like Red Hat that certainly have been able to thrive with open source software. And that's just, of course, one example. Um, as with any technology, you see its threats before you see its opportunities. Um, and so it's getting people to have a little bit of confidence that we can collectively build a better, better word. Those are the early adopters of something like this. And uh, it was Nicolas Taleb, I think, who said, experimentation le legitimize uh, failure. Is there, can we uh, motivate Elon Musk, for example, to just timestamp everything or make a prototype for a trusted web from Twitter? Your thoughts? Uh, well, I think it's an audacious gambit that he's launched. I've actually spent a lot of time the last year or so in particular trying to think of a more radical alternative to what he's su suggesting. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm starting out with two users rather than uh, a billion users. Um, but one thing I do think is at the heart of the issue is that by incorporating advertising into the system, in a sense, no matter how hard he wants it to be better, I think there will be fundamental limitations because advertising in its current form has this role reversal effect of, as I quoted before from the Apple CEO, you know, if it's not, if you're not paying for something, then you are the product. Yeah. And so I think that in incentive system is fundamentally at odds with, um, raising the level of discourse and the amount of trust that we have in, in what's written. And so one of the problems that I've been trying to attack is to create a model of what I call reverse advertising. Not sure if we talked about this prior in a prior conversation before the podcast, but <clears throat> I'll just give you a couple of ideas. Uh, anecdotes to try to communicate the idea um, rather than talk about what I see as a potential technical solution. Okay. So the first is I, I was um, one day I found myself in one of these big shopping malls, indoor shopping malls, self-contained and we're, we're not inside a store, but just outside a store at a table eating lunch. And what I see as I look around is I see all of these producers with all sorts of marketing and advertising efforts trying to attract consumers. And I asked myself, what would a reverse mall look like? Well, wouldn't a reverse mall look like uh, consumers, individuals, stationary, with a list of what it is they're interested in? in purchasing and then the, so essentially advertising, not what they have to offer, but what they need. And then having the stores, if you will, the producers walk around and try to address those needs. That's one anecdote to offer. 
let me give you another one. And then it'll be left as an exercise to the reader how to construct a solution. Okay. That's the physicist academic. So, <clears throat> and uh, again, bear with me because this story takes a minute to tell. So, turns out there was a very successful insurance salesman. Now, when I think of an insurance salesman, I think of someone that pesters me. Okay. So, they don't have a very high reputation in my uh in my space but um there was uh, this is many years ago someone had won an award for you know salesman of the year or something like that but the way he sold was not by pestering people at all but rather it was this he he sold a particular type of insurance that was very well suited to a very particular kind of individual without going into all the details. And so he researched his target market so much down to the individual level that he had a, a, a self-sustaining business model that worked like this. Okay. He got to the point where he knew enough about the individual that he would send them a letter. This is back in a US, you know, postal letter, okay? Person opens up the letter and there's a $100 bill. And it basically says, um, this, uh, it basically says, here's a $100 bill, it's yours for free, no questions asked. But I am convinced that you will so benefit from what I have to offer you that you will want to meet with me. And if you do meet with me, I will give you another $100 bill without any commitment. And when I think about receiving a, a piece of mail like that, I don't think of that as spam, okay? I think of that as well worth my time. And yet, it was in fact the case that this insurance salesman had done a good enough job of identifying the individual that would benefit from it, that he actually had a profitable business giving away, you know, these, these, these amounts of money. Yeah. And so that's a very different world than what we think of as us, as the product numbing, blinding advertising. And so trying to make that kind of world come to pass is something that I think can actually go hand in hand with creating a better civic discourse. Uh, and so that's my long way of answering the Twitter question. Yeah. Um, I think you're going to need a reversal of the advertising model for it to really work. And it's for that reason that even though I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk, I think that's one fundamental effort element that's going to be difficult to reconcile with his aim. I wish him well, but I, I, uh, I'm afraid my ego has gotten the better of me and persuaded me that maybe I can build a better mousetrap. And then the, the accountability part or the verification part, or the, um, we mentioned it before recording, 
and we mentioned it a few months back, the self-sovereign identity. Is that, what are your thoughts there? Is that a missing building block for the internet? I think it's an essential component and one where I I think uh, your own efforts uh, are well positioned. Um, Though what I was trying to suggest in our, just to bring the people uh, watching this into our prior conversation, uh, was that by linking um, identity uh, with um, the timestamping integrity, you're able to gradually build a reputation across the different um, things that you say. So rather than having people vote on whether they like this or that thing that you said, they can effectively vote an aggregate reputation that gradually rises or falls depending on the body of your work. And I think that's a natural path to self-sovereign identity. Are you optimistic enough in that or in a few is the space developing rapidly enough or how do you see it move forward for him from here well as you know i have a reputation for being someone that thinks of an idea that takes uh, decades to start playing out so i don't have a very good track record um so i'm going to assume the worst case but i'm going to i'm going to soldier on i'm going to uh, keep at it Last question, uh, and you answered it with the previous one, but the state of trust in uh, a decade from now, where do you think we are as a society? Well, I'm I'm afraid. I think that things will get a little worse before they get better. Um, I guess we are seeing a breakdown in trust, but we're also seeing a... what I perceive to be a breakdown in shared values. Okay. Um, At least in the United States, there were a set of things that we could sort of take for granted 10 or 20 years ago that we could all agree on. And that's become more, there, there seems to be less common ground. Now, do I think that's, inevitable or really the case? Well, I think the less common ground aspect is accentuated by the social media mechanisms that we currently have. Um, But I I do think there is some separation uh, going on. And um, it's certainly not a healthy thing to have people living, as many others have said, in their own uh, echo chambers. but again, I, I think uh, I think with the right kinds of dialogue, we would find that we have still uh, a great deal of overlap in what we collectively hope for, and that we ought to find a way to attenuate some of the uh, differences, which I'm not saying are minimal. But I think there are some genuine differences, but I think we can still find quite a bit of common ground and my goal is not to eliminate, you know, the areas where we disagree, but to at least make the formation of common ground more effective and more pleasant and more efficient. Is there, where will the positive change come from? Will it be, are there specific 
governments or um, large companies or will it be all grassroots movements? Where where will positive change start or accelerate? Uh, well, again, I think um, grassroots is is in a general way where all the where almost all of the best ideas uh, generate. Again, I'm not the sort of person that says big tech is evil. After all, big tech is simply small tech that was very ambitious and found a way to uh, succeed. So I don't want to cut down on the formation of big tech. I just would like to see. Um, um, more middle-class tech, I guess, is the way I would describe it. Uh, players that are efficient and successful and provide a valuable product, but that don't become so large that it leads to hubris and arrogance. Um, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. Yeah, and I, I think, I hope that radical transparency and accountability it can be, it it can be pillars of. A competitive advantage and that's what i hope to see absolutely i'm absolutely persuaded that that is true that radical transparency and accountability can be this the key asset of new players rather than uh, a perceived weakness or um chink in their armor but again it takes it takes new companies you know it takes new wine new wineskins uh, to pull that off. Scott, this conversation was fascinating. Uh, did I forgot to ask specific questions or is there anything on your mind that you want to share with listeners and watchers? Uh, I'm grateful for the chance to be a player here. Um, you know, people often ask me, gee, it must be great to have, you know, started helped to start something that's become uh influential i think there there's a lot of luck of the draw in things like that but what i'm grateful for is the chance to keep trying um you know to come up with new ideas to advocate for new ideas push them forward and just to get to participate in the in the ongoing dialogue uh it's a wonderful feeling and i wish everybody could uh feel more engaged and, and feel like they uh, they can play as well. Wonderful. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for all you brought to the space over the last decades. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to follow this up on a later moment. Great. All right. Well, thanks very much. So that was Scott Sternetta, the inventor of blockchain, together with his partner Stuart Haber. And in the Bitcoin white paper, there were eight references, three of them being to their work. So uh, it was so special to hear his thoughts on timestamping, on trust, on... Uh, yeah, that was a mesmerizing conversation. I looked forward to it for months and uh, now we did it. Hope you enjoyed it as well. If you uh, go to thetrustedweb.org slash podcast, you'll find the other episodes, you find educational materials, you find other use cases, all on building a trusted web. It's all available there and of course for free. thetrustedweb.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and therefore being part of the trusted web journey. And let's build the trusted web together. <laughs> <laughs>